All right, brothers and sisters, at this time, I want to encourage you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew 9 as we resume our study of this gospel. It's been a long time since I've said it, so I'll say it briefly here. Yes, I did say I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word. We make available the screens for your convenience, but really there's no replacement for having a tactile text in front of you. And before some of you youngsters say, oh, yeah, that's just old-fashioned. Ah, they've done study after study that shows reading comprehension is better when you have it in your hand. But I digress. Who cares about comprehension, right? No, we value the written word of God. And we want to invite you to have it for yourself. Jesus in John 17, 17 connects your sanctification, your growth and godliness to the word of God. So if you don't have the word of God, your growth will be stymied. To that end, dear visitor, dear guest, if you don't have a copy of God's word, we're going to remedy that right now. Look at the back of the pew in front of you. You'll see a Bible there. Take it. We want you to have the word of God. All right? Or if there's someone you know that's not here today and you know they will read the word of God if I give it to them, take it and give it to them. Okay? All right. Matthew 9, 14. Your bulletin says 34, but we're actually going to include 35 because 35 is a hinge verse, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But we're going to actually include verse 35 even though it's not on the screen. Okay, so 9, 14 through 35. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl arose. 
And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the living God endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for the marvelous grace of Jesus on display. Jesus, we thank you for your tenderness, your compassion, your commitment. Thank you for bringing us to God. We ask that in these moments that you would open our ears, open our hearts to receive what you have for us. It's in your name we pray, O oh Lord. Amen. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. New wine, new wine skins. God is doing a new thing. I remember in the, a while back in high school when DC Talk uh, released New Thang. Remember that song? Some of you do. You know, he's doing it. I'm not going to sing anymore. Man, that song was great. Man, DC Talk was awesome. Ugh. I hate it when bands break up, especially when they're good. Jesus is making all things new. That includes me and you. But here in this passage, we see him broadcasting and, and we see people responding and acknowledging the newness of what Jesus is doing. This passage teaches us. This passage encourages us. This passage orients us to the nature of the new covenant. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I do want to discuss a few textual things because this passage comes at an important point. 
okay? If you're studying the gospel of Matthew, the reason why I wanted to include verse 35, because it's a hinge verse that serves as the end point, the, the, the closing bracket of a section that began all the way back in chapter 4, verse 23. So let me read to you chapter 4, verse 23, and then I'll go immediately to chapter 9, verse 35. Here's chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. 935, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Okay, so what happens in 423 is Matthew is introducing a summary statement that is going to then be fleshed out with the Sermon on the Mount and then the examples of chapters 8 and 9 of Jesus showcasing his authority and then he has that same summary statement at the end in chapter 9, verse 35, wrapping that section up. And then starting with the very next verse in 36, he's going to transition then to a new section of the book that's going to be of different subject, but still pointing to the point he's trying to make. Namely, Jesus is the Messiah. So here we are today closing up this great section of Matthew. That's textual observation one that I wanted you to know. All right, now there's a history lesson that I want you to know. This verse, verse 15, 16, these verses were the inspiration for the second century heretic Marcion. Okay, Marcion was was a heretic very early in the history of the church that advocated a radical break between the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the Old Testament. That the Old Testament was literally not our scriptures. He went so far as to say that the God of the Old Testament is a different God from the God of the New Testament. Now thankfully that was rejected by the church and, 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 and we've moved on from there. Or have we? When you've got modern people like Andy Stanley saying that you'd be better off jettisoning the Old Testament. I think those were his exact words. I might be... Incorrect, but that is the gist. Jesus, earlier in chapter 5, the great thesis statement of the Sermon of the Mount, asserts and affirms his understanding of continuity, in fact, of, of focusing in on and enhancing the requirements of the Old Testament. Jesus is not obliterating the Old Testament with these words about a new Wine and a new wine skin and a new patch. Nor is Jesus doing what some moderns would like to think he's doing, which is saying that, that in every age, in every age, whenever a particular generation gets bored with the church customs and the church traditions of its age, or whatever, of their parents' age, that they do something radically different and say that it's God doing a new thing. So Jesus is neither throwing away the Old Testament, nor is he 
advocating a permanently shifting sand of a perpetual newness, what is Jesus doing? He, brothers and sisters, is hearkening and showcasing what's going to be made evident later in the book, namely, that he has come to institute a new covenant. And the newness of this new covenant abides to this day. This covenant is in effect and in force through the end of time. And so, brothers and sisters, this passage is marvelous. So what do we have going on here? Well, Jesus continues his practice of defying expectations. Jesus was a hard person to get your, to get your finger on his... Previously, at the end of the last section, he, he causes consternation and head-scratching because he, he does what they esteemed a righteous person wouldn't do. Namely, fellowship with sinners. Now, the very next episode, he's causing head-scratching again because he's not doing what they think a righteous person would do, namely engaging in the practice of ritual fasting. And in so doing, the not doing of the thing that was expected and of the doing of the thing that was unexpected, Jesus is showcasing the newness of what he's all about. This fasting that's in view here, that's, that's brought up by the disciples of John, don't take their question as if they're one of the Pharisees. They're not trying to trap Jesus. They're not trying to trick him. They're, they're genuinely bona fide confused. Their, their teacher, John, had pointed to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, now, the Pharisees were seriously religious. Their devotion led to them saying that you must fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays, twice a week. Tuesdays and Thursdays. The disciples of John, with John being an ascetic, they were hardcore. They fasted more. But they shared in common the idea that you demonstrate your piety to God by depriving yourself of the things you desire. Food. So our teachers pointed to this guy. He's the great lamb of God. Why, why is he not doing these acts of piety? How, how could that be? And so Jesus speaks into their conundrum and their confusion with some notes of gospel clarity. You see, their, their understanding of fasting was old covenant. Namely, fasting is a, is a discipline, a spiritual discipline of mourning, of lamentation, of contrition, Jesus himself in this passage acknowledges that 
connection in, in verse 15 about how they can't mourn now, but once I'm taken away, then they'll fast. All throughout the Old Testament, the calls to mourn are accompanied by the calls to fast. So as the people of God languished in a situation of being under the dominion of sin, being under the dominion of satanic powers, there's a covenant of anticipation. Salvation has not yet come. It is to come, but it's not here. Their piety evidenced that sense of longing for what has not yet happened. And so fasting, ritual fasting, was key and prominent in that pietistic context. But then Jesus came. Throughout the Old Testament, if you've read it, you know, God oftentimes refers to himself in language of a husband. And the people's infidelity to him with the language of adultery. Hence in Ephesians 5 when Paul tells us about the corresponding analogy between marriage of a man and a woman and that's a picture of the union between Christ and his people. This is, this is not this is something ongoing from the Old Testament, but specifically in the Old Testament, there are two passages that the rabbis had developed a tradition of seeing God as the great bridegroom of the people. Specifically, we have Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5. Isaiah 62, 4 and 5 says this. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall be no more termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Then there's Hosea 2, 16 and following. And in that day, the great day of restoration, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, my master. See the difference, my husband as opposed to my master for I will remove the names of the bales from her mouth and they will be remembered no more and I will make for them a covenant on that day and I will abolish the bow. I'll make you lie down in safety and I will betroth you to me forever and you shall know that I am the Lord. So the great rabbinical tradition of Israel saw God as the bridegroom of his people. So here, in these verses, we have the disciples of John coming, confused, confounded, conflicted perhaps. And Jesus brings out 
the great metaphor of the bridegroom being present and applies it to himself. He is the bridegroom. So Matthew, in his great argument of the Messiahship of Christ, has now come to the point where he's been dropping hints along the way of people falling and worshiping. But now we get to the point where Jesus is applying to himself the metaphor that his contextual peers understood clearly to be the metaphor that God uses for his relationship to his people. The bridegroom is here. How can there be mourning? And so what we see then through these next episodes, it's amazing. You, you, you have to see the connection of how fast-paced the action is connected from here. In, at the end of verse 17, you know, the new wine is put into new wineskins, and they're both preserved. And, and then verse 18, while he was saying those words. So all these episodes are boom, boom, boom. Matthew wants you to understand that they're connected, and they're making a point. Jesus is coming. I am the bridegroom. Something new has happened. That, that covenant that God speaks of in Isaiah, in, of, in Hosea, Isaiah and Hosea, they sound the same, uh, about the Messiah being the bridegroom, God being the bridegroom. That's happened. That means the new covenant is upon you. And we see the reactions of people. Some are responding in faith. Others, the Pharisees specifically, are beginning to see him as a real existential threat. So for the first time in this book, you see intentional opposition to Christ in the form of vitriol. He's casting out demons by the prince of demons. So they have at this point been confronted with the messiahship of Christ. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the wonders. They've heard the teaching and they are attributing it to demonic forces. And Matthew right there wants you to make a decision to what will you ascribe the claims and the works of Christ To what will you ascribe it? Either God has come amongst us or we have a fraudster. Either the God-man has come and the new covenant has been initiated or else we are in our sins and we are deceiving ourselves, seeking a coping mechanism for the troubles of life. What is it? Let the evidence of the signs speak for themselves. Can a fraudster raise the dead? Can a fraudster heal a chronic blood flow that has left a woman broke financially, broke physically? Can a fraudster heal the mute, cast out the demons? The wonders 
brothers and sisters, the Son of the living God has come. And in his blood, he has given us a new covenant. By his poured out blood, we have the forgiveness of sins, the restoration of relationship, reconciliation with the Father, and the hope of a restored cosmos. That's what this new wine is. And so this covenant, why are they not mourning? Why aren't they doing these, these ritualistic uh, 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 acts of piety such as fasting? Why not? Because the new covenant is upon us. It's a time to rejoice. Ours is not a covenant of anticipation with us trapped in our sins. The book of Hebrews itself says that the blood of bulls and goats never forgave anybody. That covenant was a half measure. And they acutely felt their lostness and their need for a redeemer. But ours is the covenant of fulfillment where the Lord has come and the Lord has made provision for our every act of rebellion, our every transgression. And he takes in himself our shame, our guilt, our defiance, our resistance, all of our brokenness. So, God is doing a new thing. Jesus institutes a new thing. And there are Four quick observations from this passage that I want to make about the newness. This newness that we have in Christ is the newness of joy. Brothers and sisters, your sins are paid. You are free. The devil has no claim. God's wrath has been assuaged. All the glories of heaven are promised to you. They've been, they've been attained. I mean, how can you not have joy? I mean, for us, the, what other people of the world, for us to die is gain. So ours is a covenant of joy. Second, ours is a covenant with real repentance and real restoration. All throughout these verses, we see sinners, the defiled, the outcast, the people who in the old covenant scheme had best stay on the peripheries of society lest they infect everybody else. We see all of those people turning from their sins and receiving, in light of their repentance, full restoration. No holding at arm's length. No tisk tisk, shame on you, don't you forget it. Nothing but grace. Ours is third, a covenant of real reconciliation. Jesus' most tender words are in these chapters here. 
when the man who's paralyzed earlier, he addresses him as son. And, and this woman here, I mean, I, I know we, we've, we've said it before, but the fact of the matter is, you got to remember, this was not the 21st century. They, they, women were unclean from birth. And here's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. She was in a state of perpetual filth. She's just, she's shamed, and she's too ashamed to even ask Jesus to help her. She just, she just knows that if I just touch. Now, her, her faith is, is slightly wrong. She didn't have to touch, but she does touch. And Jesus could have just kept going, but he wants to stop and acknowledge. And he refers to her, and he comforts her by calling her, daughter. That's awesome. That's tenderness. When someone comes to him, he accepts with tenderness and affection. Can you imagine it? The creator of the cosmos calling you son, calling you daughter. That's awesome. That's the covenant we have. And all these acts of healing where we're disease and uncleanness and brokenness and, and moral filth flee before the, the purging touch of pure light, life, and righteousness. It showcases to us what we have coming in the resurrection where every Every affliction is gone. Every broken thing is restored. Everything that has withered under the corruption of just being in a fallen world is refreshed and revived and restored to fullness. And all these acts of Jesus, these signs attesting to who he is, are meant not only to prove who he is, but to give us that expectation for the day when all of this, all of this, experiences that touch. And so in the meantime, Jesus is in the process of bringing in his sheep. By his spirit, making the dead live by his spirit expanding his fame and bettering the human experience through his people. But we look forward to the great day in which he returns and we have that marriage supper of the lamb and that image of, of the Lord being our husband is brought to its full climax when, when that supper occurs and we are presented as a bride radiant and her adornment. What a glorious day. So that's what Jesus is introducing here. Ours is a new, new covenant. And that means it looks different. There are going to be different practices of piety because ours is a different orientation. Not of anticipation, but of, of excitement at fulfillment. So brothers and sisters... Jesus introduces something new. He's doing something in you. 
All right. Who do you say he is? Can a fraudster change your life? Jesus is the Lord of life. He's the one who gives, the one who blesses, the one who accepts and receives. Turn to him in faith. Be like the blind men banging on the door, son of David. Be not like the religious leaders, discrediting him and denouncing him as a demon-possessed man. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the newness of the new covenant, for the new wine that Jesus has brought forth. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done and are doing and will do. Help us to trust. Help us to believe. Lord, forbid that we should have hard unbelieving hearts that just stubbornly refuse to believe. Grant, O Lord, that we would be found faithful and clinging in simple faith, unpretentious faith to you. In your name we pray, O Lord. Amen.